Welcome to Living Holistically with Dane and Indy. Where we empower you with the tools and knowledge of some of our favorite experts to help create your optimal health and lifestyle. We're your hosts, parents to three chickens and a dog in the hills of Melbourne, novice gardeners and health coaches serving other couples. Thank you for being here today. We hope you enjoy this episode. For today's episode, we have Marika Rodenstein, holistic dietitian, nutritionist, and functional medicine practitioner with over 15 years experience in her field. As a GAPS practitioner, Marika shares about gut health, including how she came to learn a village she visited was the healthiest in India, how similar the gut is to the soil and what this means for us, how to still eat healthy on a budget for a family of four, as well as how to make sure you're eating the most nutrient-dense food where you live and so much more. Before we get stuck in, we're so excited to share with you, Indy and I will be running a live masterclass on the 2nd of March on how to create optimal health that lasts without any of the crazy workouts, diets, or a ton of supplements. So if you're wanting to make health changes that really stick, We'd love for you to join us. Link in show notes for all the details or head straight to liveholistically.com.au forward slash masterclass to register. So today we have a really special guest because she's only sitting um, probably about five meters away. 10 meters, maybe 10 meters away. (laughs) Next door. (laughs) So we're very, very grateful um, to Marika, our neighbor, uh, to make time to come on our podcast today and I guess we wanted to kick it off, even though we already know you quite well, we really want to, we're really interested and also for our listeners to know uh, why and how you got into holistic nutrition. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure. So like I think many people in, in our field, I got into um, nutrition because of my own health issues. So as a teenager, I was an elite level distance runner and triathlete and, and race walker. And I dutifully followed a very low fat, high carb diet. This was in the nineties when it was, you know, low um, fat was all the race. So I didn't even because I thought there was too much fat in it. It was just all about carb loading. So I would wolf down the wheat bix and pasta and, you know, didn't eat anything that had even a trace of fat in it. And, for a period of time, I was doing really well. Um, I was uh, competing at a national level in triathlon, triathlons and distance running. Um, but I was, you know, uh, a bit of a nutcase. I was really overtrained quite significantly um, and and obviously really undernourishing my body as well. And so I started to, over time, started to experience um, a lot of health issues. So first I became amenorrheic, so I lost my periods. And then I started fractures in my femur, so the thickest bone in the body. I had quite significant stress fractures just to poor bone density. And then I started to develop a lot of gut issues because I was just eating so many carbs and grains primarily, um, as recommended by a dietitian actually. And um, I, you know, Basically, I ended up getting anorexia and then bulimia and chronic fatigue syndrome, and I suffered quite significantly from anxiety and depression and all the while really significant gut issues, which were perpetuated by the fact that when I um, had bulimia, so I, I had anorexia to start with, and then as uh, many people with eating disorders experience, kind of flipped into bulimia, and I um, abused laxatives quite significantly. So I was sometimes popping, you know, 20 dog lax laxatives a day. Um, so you can imagine the devastation that I, I got. Um, it really just, yeah, shut down. And I went kind of down the conventional path for a while. I, you know, went on the pill to try and regulate hormones. I went on antidepressants to try and deal with um, the depression and anxieties I was experiencing. I went on a dietitian-approved eating plan, which was still low-fat, high-carb, um, and ended up really just getting worse and worse. So then I decided to take my health into my own hands, and I just started researching. And my dad um, actually introduced me to the work of Dr. Weston A. Price, who physical degeneration and I just read that book from cover to cover and was just blown away it really resonated with me and so I started delving more into ancestral diets and traditional diets and to apply the principles to my own diet which was quite a radical change given you know that I I didn't even eat avocado or olives I was 
you're chugging down, you know, zero fat soy milk and all the things that you're not supposed to do on an ancestral diet. But when I started to apply those principles, my health, both physical and mental, really started to improve. And I um, actually went to the US to a Western A. Price conference and um, uh, the author of The Gaps Diet, Natasha Campbell McBride, um, she was really the first person to introduce me to the idea of this gut-brain connection and how, you know, my depression and anxiety and eating disorders really um, perhaps stemmed from these underlying gut issues that I had had. And so I had achieved already quite a significant improvement in my health, but it wasn't until I really started to address my gut health um, that I reached that next level. So that's kind of been my passion really is 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 gut health um and so I really you know wanted to do I wanted to do this as a, a profession so um I started when I was in Australia because I grew up mostly in Australia um, but I am from Holland originally and I was studying um a Bachelor of Science in Human Biology at Canberra Uni but then I met my husband here who's also Dutch and ended up moving to Holland with him and that's where I decided um I wanted to study uh, nutrition and dietetics. So studied nutrition and dietetics at the University of The Hague, which was quite challenging because obviously it's it's very much um, like the dietetics courses here, very much um, follows the principles of the food pyramid, which is something that um, I was very not very much not aligned with. I didn't the industry driven food pyramid in any way. So that was really challenging doing that degree because. I had already formed my philosophy views on nutrition, which many times were actually polar opposite to what we were learning. Uh, so I had some really interesting discussions with my lecturers and um, ended up getting through it. And uh, I was fortunate we, um, in the last year of my degree, we moved to Hyderabad in India um, because my husband got some work um, over there. And so I ended up doing my clinical placement, everything at a hospital in India, which was really amazing because there, you know, in, in, in the intensive care, instead of, you know, um, giving patients all this tube synthetic food, you know, we would just go to the kitchen and they would whiz up a curry and then I'd go down and then pour it down the tube. So they were getting whole food. And, Amazing, actually, the the benefits that I saw from patients still having whole foods as opposed to you know the uh, quite you know synthetic um, nutrition that they get here. Really um, amazing and eye opening experience for me living there and having worked as a volunteer dietitian at a hospital there, but also um, also just in um, in and around Hyderabad. I was fortunate to be able to work on various projects and um yeah that further ignited my passion in traditional and ancestral things um so yeah that kind of led me to where I am today so it was a long journey but a very valuable one and I, I wouldn't you know even though it was difficult I wouldn't um you know I wouldn't change things because um, I think I wouldn't be here where I am today if I hadn't have gone through those health struggles, both physical and, and mental. Yeah, exactly. And what sort of, um, I'm really curious, what sort of age were you at when you were experiencing um, all those symptoms and from bulimia and yeah, anorexia? From the age of uh, about 14 and a half, 15. Yeah. Uh, it's a yeah. really tough time. Now, and in my early 20s, that's when I... Um, had really, you know, overcome all of those issues. So it was quite yeah. you know, good um, seven, seven years, seven, eight years. Yeah, I really did struggle quite significantly. And I, it was, you know, in um, the peak of it happened when I was in year 11 and 12, so I missed quite a lot of school. And then through uni, you know, at, the, at Canberra Uni, starting and then having to stop and then starting because, you know, everything would go well for a period of time, but then the chronic peak would set in because I hadn't, again, really addressed the gut um, at that point in time. So, yeah, so I was kind of managing gut symptoms but not really getting to the root. Yeah, and did you find that um, emotional stuff was a component in that as well? Definitely, yeah. There is such a significant connection between the gut and the brain, and I certainly 
haven't experienced that. Um, and still today, you know, I, I do find if I get a little bit more um, stressed, I will, you know, the gut is still my weak spot, regardless of how much work I've done. I obviously did a bit of damage to it. So it's still my weak spot. So if I'm, you know, extra stressed, I will start to experience some more gut-related symptoms. And then that's like a vicious cycle because those gut symptoms can then often perpetuate, you know, the the mental health side of things. So have to be um, aware of. And I think I think for everyone, really, we all need to um, really tune in to our gut and, and nurture it because so many of us just neglect and abuse it often without even realising. And, you know, it's, it's the most complex ecosystem on the planet. And if we look after it and nurture it, we are guaranteed better health. But if we do neglect it and abuse it, then we're bound to run into health issues. And it, it is sometimes a very fine fine line. Mm, yeah, definitely. And with, I'm really curious as well in India, what sort of, um, what sort of issues did you see with nutrition? They obviously malnutrition is a big, big issue. I worked, um, primarily actually with victims of fluorosis. So, um, in where um, Hyderabad is situated, um, it's in an area where fluorosis is quite endemic. There's a few areas around the world. Um, I think one area is in Kenya and China, but Andhra Pradesh in India, there's very high levels of fluorosis because the um, groundwater is very, very high in fluoride. And so um, just an hour and a half outside of Hyderabad, there were numerous villages where you know pretty much every inhabitant had fluorosis or early signs of fluorosis so I worked with a lot of doctors to um, bring attention to it and, and try to find solutions so that was um, that was you know a, a really interesting experience um, and it just kind of highlighted I think a lot of the problems with corruption and everything there because these particular villages that I visited they weren't too far away from a big lake and um, Pepsi-Cola, they employed a female CEO at the time and they developed, they invested a lot of money in um, building a pipeline from this particular lake to the factory in Hyderabad in order to source the water to make the fabric. And the pipeline basically traversed through a lot of these villages but they didn't spend the money on actually making some branches off this pipeline to supply these villages with some fresh water. And so it, it, it was, I found it a really difficult reality. Um, and, I, you know, all around the world you see governments, you know, they um, don't often have the interests of, of their uh, people in mind and certainly this highlighted that very much for me. And, and what I saw in the hospitals a lot was actually um, – in intensive care, a lot of farmer, farming families um, trying to unsuccessfully commit suicide because they would, you know, purchase seed from a company like Monsanto, for example, and the crop would fail, but they would still have to pay, you know, for the the seed. And so they didn't find any way out. So sometimes you would see whole families actually where they would drink pesticides and just, you know, potentially committing suicide but actually they would completely you know burn through their esophagus and I was really surprised that, that very frequently the the intensive care would have um farmers that um yeah so again it was it was really eye-opening but really really difficult to to deal with all of that um uh, because you you are really hopeless really what, what can you do it's yeah, yeah, you're just dealing with sort of the after effects of that and it feels like you're probably just, you know, even though you're doing such good work and it, it's sort of only, um, yeah, you're not getting to the cause of it in a sense because yeah. it's such a big issue, you know, for one person to handle or even yeah. a team. Um, and that sort of perfectly leads in, I think, to because that would have shaped your philosophy and understanding of farming and soil health yeah. um, and the way things grow probably, you know, at a really young young age as yeah. well. Yeah, well, actually my dad, um, he's a soil scientist, so he sort of early on, um, you know, 
ignited this interest there as well. He was a senior research scientist at CSIRO for 25 years, and he was the only scientist working on um, organic and biological agricultural systems at the time. But um, this was, you know, when early 2000s, when um, you know GMO was very much emerging. He was very vocal about questioning genetically modified organisms, and you know, um, really trying to. Um, encourage CSIRO to do more testing before promoting it. And because he was so vocal, he ended up getting sacked, actually, after 25 years as a research scientist. And unfortunately, his work on organic and biological agricultural systems left with him. Um, See a future for that, you know, which is, again, typical. Um, And so he then started to travel around Australia and just help farmers convert from conventional to more biological and organic agriculture systems so that's he's he's incredibly passionate about that and we always have really lengthy conversations particularly about the similarities between the soil biome and the gut microbiome and how you know um growing healthy plants very much depends on the soil biome and the organisms and the diversity of organisms and growing healthy humans again it depends very on having a a really nice diverse yeah I always um, encourage my clients you know uh, to where possible to grow their own food or to visit farmers markets Um, and then you don't necessarily you know need to buy organic food but but spray free there are a lot of um, amazing farmers in Victoria who really pay attention to the quality of their soil and don't use any chemical inputs but don't go to the effort and expense of actually produce certified and you know I always encourage people to you know when they um, have a cherry tomato when they pick that from the vine don't wash it because that cherry tomato has all these amazing um, microorganisms on it that's like your natural probiotic it's much more effective and um, sustainable than you know popping a probiotic capsule and I think we've you know we're at the point where there are so many different probiotics on the market and people get this false sense oh well if I take a probiotic I'm taking care of my gut health but the long-term implications could actually be much worse because you know if you're taking a probiotic you might take one that maybe has a maximum of 12 strains really most wouldn't even have that many if you take day in day out you're kind of narrowing the diversity really of the um, bacteria in your gut rather than diversifying it and so you know I just encourage people to grow their own food or go to farmers markets and buy well-grown spray-free produce and then you know not washing it if necessary to get all those amazing soil organisms um yeah and that that's not only great for the environment because it's supporting farmers who really support the soil biome but amazing for your own gut health as well yeah i feel so grateful that we live in an area where you can literally just go to farm gates and buy stuff that is spray free and if you talk to them a lot of them are really transparent um and want to tell you how they've been growing things, especially if they've not been spraying it. Um, but they won't necessarily um, promote organic because obviously they, they're not allowed to. Um, so, yeah, we're very fortunate that we live in this part of the world where there is a lot of that available. Um, and Melbourne, yeah. we have a lot of amazing farmers markets around Melbourne and great, you know, farmers. Um, in the Gippsland area, all over, all over Victoria, really. There's a, a real movement towards regenerative farming in Australia, but particularly in Victoria. Um, so it's really great to support. You know, you 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 support this kind of farming practice by purchasing produce from these kind of farms. The more we can all do that, the more we we can encourage farmers all across Australia to start implementing more of these practices, um, regenerative agricultural practices. Yeah, exactly. It's so worth doing that little bit of extra um, research or, you know, driving that little bit extra just to, um, yeah, to put your money towards those farmers instead of, yeah, farmers that are bring the food and, you know, it's sort of, um, it's sort of contributing to that, um the soil degradation and also things like drought so i know it sort of flips the whole thing on its head of we have you know we're in droughts um you know the poor farmers and stuff and 
in a way that's true, but it's sort of because of the conventional model and how they've been taught to farm, unfortunately. Um, it doesn't support the regeneration of the land and also turning um, land that might not be so fertile into something that can produce really nutritious food. Yeah, and there's some great, there's a wonderful book. He, there was actually an ABC Australian story on Charles Massey recently and a wonderful book that he wrote called The Call of the Weed Warbler, um, which is all about regenerative agriculture. And the Australian story um, is amazing and it shows aerial footage of his farm um, compared to the surrounding farms and his farm is lush living and, you know, the rest around him are just, you know, bare. Um, so it's a great, I would definitely encourage anyone to, to watch that or read the book. It's a very thick book. Um, it's amazing, but there's a lot of great information. Um, I love the work of Dr. Zach Bush, um, US. Yeah, he's very much into soil health and he's an incredible speaker and, um, incredibly knowledgeable and yeah, listening to his podcast on the subject and the connections with human health are, yeah, really interesting. That leads them well into, so if you have the space for people that they want to and they can grow their own vegetables, that's like obviously an ideal situation and even having their own chickens as well, like us and having the eggs from that. But for people that um, I guess are in say families, like as yourself, a family of four, a lot of, I guess, misconceptions around eating healthy for a family of four and if they don't have the space to, I guess, grow their own garden and grow their own food is that I guess what is um, your sort of experience to be able to I guess eat healthy as a family of four especially with two young kids two young boys definitely um, eating seasonally as much as possible because seasonal produce is always less expensive um, and obviously when it's in season it's much more nutritious you're getting more vitamins minerals antioxidants so we try to follow the seasons as much as possible. Um, I don't grow – I do have friends and my dad who's in Canberra, he and um, his wife pretty much grow the majority of their food, every square metre of their uh, their garden block is full of produce and they have a community garden as well. So they very much eat everything. We don't have that set up as yet. I aspire to that but need a little bit more time invest but you know uh, we do get a vegetable box from a local farm in Mombok who um, during lockdown actually because um, they would normally supply their produce to uh, restaurants around Melbourne but of course because that wasn't possible they were offering vegetable boxes to the community and they've continued to do that so we get this amazing vegetable box which is very inexpensive of beautiful seasonal produce um, we fill that with some things from the garden and you know we shop at our local organic store, Clister Organic Market, who, again, um, have really affordable produce, particularly when it is in season. Um, and so when you eat seasonally, you pay a lot less. And we do buy a lot of things in bulk to try and minimise, obviously, use of plastic as well. But, again, if you're buying, you know, a big uh, bag of almonds or um, other nuts or a big bag of buckwheat or something like that, you're always going to spend a lot less. So buying in bulk is a really great way to to achieve that as well um and again anytime something's on special you know we buy all of our own um we we buy mostly just grass-fed meat um ideally i'd like to get a freezer and then buy half a beast that's the next thing on our our list as well because that's a way that you can save money also um but i just buy mostly again things that are um on special at the local organic store or um uh, sometimes even at um coles or woolworths or the aldi they'll have some really good um produce when it's in season or something that's on special so as long as you um follow the seasons and um you know try not to be too wasteful i think that's a really big part of um the we just in Australia I can't remember the statistic but we throw out a significant amount of produce at the end of every week um, because we have the intentions of cooking it preparing it and then don't end up doing so and that's a lot of you know nutrition down the drain but money down the drain as well so I often at the end of the week if um, there's a lot of produce that's kind of wilting away in the fridge I will cook up a big soup and you know put every single vegetable that's in the fridge in that soup and just blend it up um and again you know soups and stews we make our own bone broths which is very inexpensive all these kinds of things I make 
resources and, you know, it takes a little bit of effort, but it, you end up saving a lot of money and then you're aware of exactly what's in it. You don't get all these nasty hidden ingredients. So, um, I mean, I think we probably on average – we would definitely spend more um, than the average family of four in Australia, I, I think, um, because it's something that's, you know, really important to us. Um, and so we would prefer to forego other investing in other things like a new flat screen or anything like that, spend money on nutrition. But, you know, during lockdown, we definitely um, – you know, we were, we had more time to kind of look at our budget and we were able to significantly reduce the amount of um, money we were spending on food just by, again, buying more things in bulk or um, just, again, buying things when they're on special because, you know, frozen berries, even at the Coles and Woolworths, the organic frozen berries are often on special. Then we just, you know, buy four packs instead of just one. Or when bananas are in special, we, you know, peel them, chop them up and put them in the freezer and that kind of thing. So... Um, it's very possible, I think, to if you've got a bit of time to uh, look at what's in season and kind of follow the specials that are at your local supermarket and stockpile some things in freezers. That's a great way to. to mm, and I think a lot of people think about specials, you know, just being with the big supermarkets. But as you probably know, like we have really good ones at our local health food store where we're, you know, able to save heaps and it's usually on produce and stuff that, you know, is nowhere near dead. It's just that it's not as fresh as the other stuff. And um, if you're going to use it really quickly, like we buy just for the week um, and we're usually cooking that same day, it works out to be really um, good because you're saving like half the price or something and, you know, things like yeah, things like eggs, you know, we've gotten half the price for organic eggs regularly. So yeah, that's a really good thing to look out for. And do you look out for as well, um, anything to do with like where it's from as well? Cause obviously that can be a big concern. Uh, so I try to buy as local as possible. It's funny because a friend of mine from Holland was visiting two years ago and she wanted to do some shopping for us because um, she'd been staying for a while. And, you know, normally I have like places that I go to. So she borrowed the car and went down to the Woolies and then she knows that we like to buy a lot of organic or spray fruit. So she went, came back and had this whole bag full of organic produce, but nothing was from Australia. So she had organic from California, organic asparagus, really organic um, broccoli that came from somewhere, which I was really surprised with, kiwi fruits that again came from Italy, not even New Zealand, but Italy. This whole bag full, and not one single item in that bag came from Australia, let alone Victoria. So um, I'm very, very conscious of trying to buy as locally as possible um, because, especially with fresh produce, if that's coming from overseas, you know, you can imagine how long ago it's been picked and then it has to be fumigated upon arrival. And really, there's not a lot of nutrition left in whatever comes from. Um, overseas so yeah that's something that we really do try to follow when we when we buy nuts for example you can get really affordable um, almonds from the Aldi now which are Australian almonds uh, whereas if you buy them from uh, other places it might come from somewhere overseas so even if it's organic I would you know if it's coming from overseas I would prefer to buy local that's not organic but if they're if it's produce that you know isn't heavily sprayed or sprayed at all then um yeah I think that's a really important so when I sort of started on this journey I was like oh everything has to be certified organic but I soon realized, you know it's absolutely not necessary um to, to uh, be what are some of the ones that you would suggest people definitely get organic and some of the ones that would be okay yeah, so I always encourage people every year to print out the Dirty Dozen list that's released by the EWG. So it is obviously a list that's from the US, so it's the 12 most highest great fruits and vegetables. But having spoken to, um, you know, a lot of farmers here, they do say the chemical inputs are quite similar in terms of what they can produce. So things like strawberries, I would really never touch if they're not organic or, or spray-free. Um, celery, um, a really big one you know with the celery juicing uh moment a lot of people are just buying you know your conventional celery and then they're kind of concentrating all of the pesticides in their celery juice yeah so that's a really big one um i do try to get leafy greens as much as possible um organic or spray free 
Um, and then like peaches, nectarines in the summer, definitely. Um, highly sprayed, they always feature in the Dirty Dozen list. Potatoes are using a lot of fungicides now in potatoes, so that is something, again, that I'll buy organic. But these these alternatives are often even available at um, standard supermarkets, so you can buy a bag of organic potatoes from a Coles or a Woolworths, for example. So people don't always necessarily have to go to an organic store or a farmer's market. A lot of these alternatives are available at standard supermarkets. Mm. And um, I guess another big thing is what's your take on as well the nutritional value? Because obviously a lot of the time when you have conventionally grown stuff, it's just got, you know, some synthetic fertilizer and it's really, you know, when people sort of put things out there like um, garlic's really good for this or, you know, apple has this and this, (laughs) you know, you see it a lot on Instagram. And I just wonder, like, there's a lot often – they don't often stipulate whether it's, you know, these are the nutrients from an organic one or a really um, poorly farmed one and, nu- and nutrient deficient soil. Yeah, yeah. I do definitely believe that food is only as good as the soil from which it grows. And the more healthy the soil, the more diverse the soil biome, the healthier the plant and the more minerals and vitamins in the plant. And that has been, um, unfortunately, there's not a huge amount of, research because there's obviously not a lot of money to be made research but the research does show that produce plants that are grown in healthy soils do tend to have much higher levels of minerals Um, and we know that from um, meat as well so they have done research for example on um, cows for, for example that graze on grass their whole entire life their meat is much higher in omega-3 fatty acids and vitamin e significantly higher in selenium and zinc so this is all being um, scientifically validated as opposed to um, cows that are mostly grass-fed and then pumped full of grain in the last few life their meat is significantly lower in the omega-3 and selenium and zinc and vitamin e so there is a more research looking at you know the differences um which is really great to have that you know scientific validation but you can often i find you can really taste the difference as well like the a conventional carrot grown in unhealthy soil compared to a carrot that's grown in healthy soil the the difference is quite significant Um, and I find that with I I find even you know people who I mean I'm a huge foodie I love food um, but I find even people who aren't foodies and I I, you know encourage them to try they'll often say oh actually I really notice the difference in this cherry tomato compared to that cherry tomato or this carrot compared to that carrot so if people really tune in you can often you can often really identify that there is a difference. This episode is brought to you by Barclay Eyewear, the only blue blockers created by a health professional and that will protect you from day to night from the harmful spectrums of artificial light. If you haven't heard what all the fuss is about, make sure you check out Season 1, Episode 6, where Dane and I delve into all things light and circadian rhythms to understand why these are a game changer for your health. And to say thank you for your support, we've got an exclusive discount of 15% off if you use the code HOLISTIC15. That's H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C-1-5. Just head to barkleyeyewear.com. That's B-A-R-K-L-E-Y-E-Y-E-W-E-A-R.com. Yeah, you just have to actually try and <laughs> see. Like... I think strawberries is a really big one for me. Like when you taste a strawberry that's grown in really good soil out here um, and spray free, not necessarily organic, but just, oh my gosh, the taste difference. It's crazy. I guess, yeah, conscious of time. <laughs> um, so, um, Could you tell us also some key practices you have around food that you also teach clients? One of the biggest things um, when you ask yourself whether a certain food is healthy always ask yourself where does it come from and what has been done to it because that they're the two most important questions because you could have, you know, two blocks of chocolate. One is a Cadbury dairy milk chocolate and one is a really nice dark chocolate. Where does that chocolate come from and what's been done to it? That really determines whether something can be health-promoting or, um, you know, the opposite, actually really bad for your health. Uh, so, again, the same with, with any kind of produce. I always encourage people to say, okay, where does it come from 
and what's been done to it. And the more we can rely on food that comes from healthy farming systems and that hasn't been processed, that's, I think, the key to ensuring that we can have a really healthy and sustainable uh, diet. Um, so minimally processed whole foods is what I generally encourage. And it's it's really not about deprivation. I always you know, really emphasize the fact that it's about healthy swapping because there is a healthier alternative to every food out there. Instead of your dairy milk, there is the diet. You know, instead of Vegemite, you can get natural miso paste. That's, you know, the, the mm, or there's some really good, like, mm. ones like Every Mite or exactly. I think there's a few different, mm. like, exactly. non-yeast ones. And sometimes, yes, it will sometimes cost more, but, you know, a slab of good quality butter doesn't cost more than margarine. Um, so swapping from margarine to a, a good quality butter that comes from grass-fed cattle. So even the Western Star butter, which is really cheap, it's available at every supermarket, that's from 100% grass-fed cows. And, so, you know, you're not actually spending more on that. So some healthy swaps you don't actually have to spend any more. Um, others, yes, they will incur some more um, cost, but the benefit will you know, will probably save you money down the track on having to deal with a lot of the health issues that you will uh, inevitably encounter if you continue to highly processed diet. So, yeah, I always encourage looking at where something comes from, what's been done to it, keeping it as minimally, minimally processed as possible, and then healthy swapping as much as possible. Um, yeah, because there is really, literally to every single food, um, there is a healthy alternative. There is. And I think it's especially important to remember coming up to holiday season and Christmas. So I've taken on the challenge this year of trying to make healthy profiteroles <laughs> for home. <laughs> and you know what? We had some this morning. I did a little test run. And they taste so much like the normal ones. Mm. Like it is really shocking and amazing what you can create if you just, yeah, look for it. There's what are so they made many. From? Um, so it's not like one of my preferred flowers that I would use, but in terms of it comparing it to, I guess, a wheat or something, it's pretty good. Um, I used arrowroot flour. Uh, no, I used tapioca flour, um, an egg, coconut milk. Um, and some coconut um, coconut oil as well, and that's all it was for just for the pastry, the right. sheep pastry. Yeah, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't have known. It's yeah. like exactly the same texture, everything. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, I think you know, it's important to kind of get into the kitchen and experiment if you have the time. Um, and if you have, if you don't have the time, I always encourage people to try and make the time. Um, to, you know, get into the kitchen, especially if you have children, because they will model what you teach them. It's really important that they see you in the kitchen making food because if they're always just seeing you grabbing a packet out of the cupboard, that's what they're going to do when they're older and that's what they're going to teach their children. So I'm a big believer in, you know, trying to get into the kitchen with your kids as often as possible and just creating food that, and, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, master chef material. And I think, you know, all of those shows have been great, but they have, I think, created um, these high expectations, you know, serving a piece of beautiful meat or fish with some steamed vegetables and a salad. It's kind of like now that's inferior. Um, and so I, you know, I'm all about simplicity. I don't any fancy dishes. I just want to put something together really quickly, 10, 15 minutes, not too many ingredients. I don't think we're designed to, you know, digest 40 different ingredients in meals. So I do keep it really, really simple um, with my kids as well. And they, they love that. And that's all they've known. So they're not at all, you know, fussy eaters. I started them when they started solids, they started on liver and egg and bone broth and, and, you know, so they eat everything. It's not because they're particularly special children. It's just because that's what they got and they never got an alternative. And unfortunately we've now kind of created this culture where we, you know, bend to the needs of our children where we actually have really firm and if you don't want to have that then there's no alternative and actually just give them what you're eating um and eating really simple unprocessed food without lots of you know just using herbs and spices as flavoring and everything you know their taste buds 
are just much broader. They have a greater appreciation for natural flavors if they're not bombarded with MSG and sugar. And um, yeah. For me, as a guy, definitely as a male, I want to keep it as efficient as possible, that's for sure. And for India, it's definitely as flavorful as possible, but we never <laughs> skimp on quality, which is, as you've been um, explaining throughout this podcast yeah, as well, and so it's quality is okay. It's really easy to do as well when you just have some, like, you know, a good stock of organic herbs and spices. Like, it's really, really easy just to flavor things, um, you know, quickly without putting a whole lot of extra, um, you know, fresh ingredients or something that comes specifically from this um, shop and, you know, all those sorts of things. And I think that's kind of what MasterChef has created, like you were saying. It's really emphasized on what it looks like and what it tastes like rather than what's the quality and where does it come from, people. Yeah. And with your kids, like, how have you gone with, um, you know, having them exposed, I guess, to other kids and um, outside sources of, you know, food and what that should be like? So, fortunately, um, we, most of our close friends follow very similar dietary philosophy and and lifestyle. Um, But obviously, you know, there's been a lot of, school party invites and things that um, I have had to just, you know, step back. So initially in the first few years, particularly for Bodhi, my oldest, who's 10, I was quite strict with what he could and couldn't have. And he was, you know, completely fine with that. But I knew as he would start school and he'd be invited to, you know, birthday parties and sleepovers, I would have to you know, loosen the reins a bit. And I have done that. And he is really good because he's, you know, he grew up eating so much healthy, nutrient-dense food and very little sugars. He will often come home and say, oh, you know, I had a piece of cake, but it was so sweet I couldn't have more than a piece or, you know. So I I am happy for him to, you know, I, I don't kind of put any limits on when he's at friends' houses or goes to birthday parties what he can have because I actually know that he will only have a certain amount because he just can't simply tolerate anymore. And I think that's really important that children do, you know, um, get a sense of of a lot of different flavours and foods so they can actually get a sense of also how they feel because Brody will often say, oh, I had that you know, I had a little bit of fizzy drink and, oh, my tummy felt really bad or then he makes that association. Um, so, you know, it was it, it was a difficult thing to kind of let go of at first, but it's actually worked really, really well. Um, and my little one, Siggy, who's four, um, having a big brother, obviously, he has been exposed to a few more feeds than Bodhi would have by the age of four. But, again, he's really um, good at – at just saying no when he doesn't want any more if he's been to a cousin's house or something and they're they're having something that he ordinarily would wouldn't have he'd have a little taste of it and he's like oh no I'm I've had enough or so it's kind of trusting your children um I think is an important thing you know foods but then talking to about how did that make you feel or when they do complain of a tummy ache or a headache or perhaps it was because you had that food and that's not necessarily a bad thing but that's why we don't have it every day Uh, yeah I love that way of them exploring on their own and uh, you know with the guidance of you being able to educate them and I think that's the main thing I grew up um, on a lot of really good food but I think that's maybe what was missing um the overall like sort of education about why we were eating that way and why we didn't have things it sort of was the missing key for my understanding of my body and health and everything so I think, yeah, it's really important, even from a young age, that we explain to them and sort of, um, yeah, introduce them to so many different types of food, especially fermented foods, because I know when they're little um, and a baby, like they're having mostly breast milk or usually, um, which is very sweet. So they get, you know, from a baby, very accustomed to sweet tastes. So trying to, I guess, introduce those more um, sour bit of foods from a young age is really key and my my boys still will have a spoonful of sauerkraut or kimchi or um you know fermented beet or something with with every dinner and sometimes with breakfast if we're having eggs for breakfast and that's again one of the first things they had was just a little like half a teaspoon of sauerkraut juice and so they love all of those flavors because they've been introduced to it early so that's really key for anyone listening who's yet to start the parenting journey or yet to start 
journey is really um, that's this key window of opportunity where you can actually shape um, the the preferences of your child for later in life and also primarily shape the microbiome because um, you know obviously we inherit our microbiome as we're passing through the vaginal canal and then anything that happens after birth will obviously affect that so the um, balance of bacteria will be affected by exposure to antibiotics but a really significant shift happens when a child starts solids so if a child starts solids and primarily has rice cereal which is recommended here in Australia and um, just lots of fruit pouches and things it's all carbohydrate it's going to fuel certain opportunistic rather than you know having a really nice diverse diet with lots of uh, fermentable fibers and things which will really fuel those good bacteria so it's it's actually an easy investment in time for parents to focus on you know that that first sort of six to 12 months of solids because the benefit that that will have will last most likely a lifetime mm, and should they just be having sort of similar foods but maybe in a different form like when they're yeah, so I usually recommend, um, you know, not mixing too many things together all at once. So, you know, doing like a, a pumpkin puree or a bit of liver or an egg yolk or um, so starting really simply like that and mostly protein and fat-based foods because babies don't actually um, develop all the enzymes to digest carbohydrates until they're about two. So digestive systems are so immature they're not actually equipped to digest the amount of grains that is generally recommended now and they recommend something like rice cereal because it's easy to fortify with iron because at six months a baby's iron stores drops quite dramatically but traditionally people would wean babies on liver for the reason because iron and all the other minerals and vitamins so um, I do try and encourage my clients to start and and a lot of people say oh but liver is is disgusting they won't like that yeah or how do you sorry how do how do you deal with um people that also follow um a vegetarian or vegan diet that's really challenging I um I really encourage anyone who's of childbearing age wanting to have children not to follow a vegan diet because if you look at traditional cultures all around the world um they would all their sacred fertility foods were all animal-based foods so sacred fertility foods in um, areas near the ocean would be fish roe for example which is incredibly rich in omega-3 fatty acids and vitamins, minerals, all the nutrients necessary to grow a fish, obviously, from the egg. And um, in other areas, it would be liver. So in 2007, my husband and I, we went to um, South Africa and Namibia, and we met uh, a local scientist there in Namibia who worked with the, the local sound, the bushman, and she said when they slaughter a beast, the organ meats go to the young fertile couples of the tribe and then the muscles go to the old barren women of the tribe. And, you know, here we put a huge price tag on a porterhouse steak, yet liver doesn't even make it to dog food. It's discarded. But they recognize that all the nutrition to um, support optimum fertility and the growth of a baby and the development of a baby is found in these animal-based foods. So everywhere around the world, all those traditional cultures um, relied on animal-based foods and particularly vitamin A. It really is like the concept master for fetal. And you cannot get vitamin A from a carrot despite what a lot of people will say. Vitamin A is only found in animal foods and carrot. Yeah, and B12. Yeah, and B12 and folate. I mean, liver is an incredible source of folate as well. Um, So I really discourage anyone who is of childbearing age wanting to have children to follow a vegan diet and certainly also not putting their children on a vegan diet. Um, But it's very popular. Or dogs for that matter. (laughs) Or dogs. (laughs) But it's incredibly popular and... The, the unfortunate thing is that there are quite a lot of influencers out there who are promoting this diet throughout, you know, for preconception, for pregnancy, for child rearing, and I think it's really irresponsible. Um, but, you know, as a dietitian, there's so little that um, I can do to influence. I personally am not on social media. I'm, I'm not a fan of the social media space. Um, and so, um, it's, I see what people are promoting, 
um, influencers who had no, you know, qualifications at all in nutrition or dietetics or anything like that. And it's really difficult then to sit back and, and know that there are thousands of, you know, um, young couples, impressionable young couples out there that then take this information and the consequences of that can be really significant. And so it's it's, a, it's really difficult um, because of, you know, when I started in this profession, there was not a lot of, you know, we didn't really use the internet much. And so now it's just a whole different ballgame. You're, you're, when you, when I get clients, they've heard about all these different things from all these sources and it's like the documentaries as well I think that's really difficult because it has this very one-sided biased look at animal farming and it's all factory farms that you know we don't support either that's right about not having meat yeah having healthy meat and actually today is the last day I'm going to watch it today sacred cow yes (laughs) we're going to to free screening so I've got it on my to-do list today to watch but I think yeah but that's all about you know it's not about cutting out meat we actually do require live stock to help with the diversification of the soil microbiome and it's about you know we collectively we need to reduce our intake of meat but we need to source meat from healthy sustainable um, agricultural systems um, and that's yeah unfortunately what a lot of these documentaries they'll just you know say well all, all, all they heap everything into the one bucket. Um, yeah, so I find it is very challenging because a lot of people are getting so much information from different avenues and um, a, lo- a lot of people feel feeling very overwhelmed, uh, especially when they a lot of people who I see have quite significant health issues and have done the rounds of lots of different diets and therapies and kind of often come to me as sort of like a last resort and so it's it's difficult sometimes to address all the misconceptions and things that they have um around food and you know we just so much information that it is really difficult yeah yeah I can imagine that probably takes a session alone you know just to (laughs) to spell all that yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the, that's the downside of social media is that the it's like a sea of information out there, and a lot of people are uh, don't have uh, like a lot of experience in there. Whether that's in they're just finding one area and just taking that, and it's even uh, carnivores are very extreme um, opposite of that. That's right, and I think short term it yeah. can have benefits, mm. uh, and just yeah, like you exactly. know, a lot of people will say, "Well, I went vegan and my health improved so much." Well, anyone who you know cuts out the crap improve their health whether they're going vegan or carnivore if you're cutting out the processed foods and you're always going to see an improvement in your health but it's about sustainable long-term and um i'm very much you know i don't think you can find health in the extremes it's all about finding a balance and listening to your body um that's so so important and a lot of people when they get stuck on a certain way of eating they, they, they think, well, that's the right way, but then their body starts to change and they're like, oh, no, but this is the right way and they don't listen and they keep doing that and then they end up with more health issues. So sometimes we have to tune in and think, oh, actually my body prefers, you know, having more warming kind of cooked foods now or maybe, you know, I like to gravitate to more towards salads or now I'm just not sitting quite well so I might do a couple of meat-free days a week for the time. You know, it's just kind of tuning in and um, it, that's a challenge because a lot of people really have no idea about what their body's doing. And I talk a lot about the gut and, you know, talk about looking at your poos. I mean, what do your, what do your stools look like? I don't know. I look at it. It's like, you know, that's window to your gut. The time you do a poo, have a good look at it. You know? Dane's um, an expert at that. Yeah. <laughs> I always encourage people to print out the Bristol stool chart, you know, stick it on your toilet bowl door and if you've got family members you know get them to say you know what what number were you today was it a number four high fives you know was it a number seven or a one okay let's see if we can do something to you know to really look at that and my kind of big aha moment with respect to you know the stools and how it reflects our health came when I was living in India and I was um 
uh, traveling with a friend of mine who was also a dietitian from Holland. We were traveling through Kerala and we heard about this amazing pristine beach where no tourists went. So we thought, right, that's where we have to go. And we decided to go for a walk along the beach and soon came across quite a few deposits of stool, which initially we thought was dog feces because, you know, in India there are quite a lot of wild dogs. But then we realized they were quite nicely lined up and there was a kind of a little hole. And then we, we realized it wasn't actually dog feces, it was human feces. And we learned that this particular village didn't have a sewage system. So what they would do is every feces on the beach and then when the high tide came in it would just wash them and you know initially after our disgust and, and we then realized well this is why no tourists come we kept walking and we actually were quite flabbergasted because every single one of these stools and there were dozens and dozens of them was the perfect bristol stool type number four so here was this village from young to old at around the same time every day depositing this perfect stool um, and you know having had all these gut issues myself by this that time this was 2006 I had already done quite a lot of work on my gut but still I wasn't producing you know a consistent good stool from day to day and he was this entire village doing so and I later found out because I was really curious I later found out that this village had the lowest rate of obesity lowest rate of diabetes lowest rate of heart disease of any um, area in the whole of India and they had a, one of the best diets that I had come across really high in probiotic foods and prebiotic foods anti-inflammatory foods seafood interesting and so can I ask mm. sorry to interrupt what is the probiotic food for them because I haven't come across that a lot of fermented dairy so lassi and but obviously traditionally fermented um, and they were also fermenting some different kinds of vegetables and also um, beans and pulses primarily. So idlis and all the fermented um, rice and dishes. And then they had quite a lot of leafy greens in their diet and lots of tropical fruits like um, enzyme-rich papaya and pineapple, which are really rich in enzymes. Um, and then, this, you know, fish rich in omega-3 fatty acids. So they had – and lots of coconut oil, so good fats – so they had a really amazing diet and they did attribute their health to their diet. And you could see, you know, their stools were a reflection of their good gut health, which was a reflection of their good diet and which was a reflection of their overall good health. And so that for me was really like that aha moment where, wow, you know, stools can give you an incredible insight into your gut health. And some people have significant degrees of imbalance of bacteria in the gut or what we call gut dysbiosis and do have pretty good stools every day but a lot of people um, will actually find that um, you know they might not produce a stool every day or it might be quite loose or it might be really slimy or you know so I do always encourage people to have a good look <laughs> on a regular basis um, because mm -hmm. yeah Right yeah and it's linked to your circadian rhythm a bit as well which is really interesting you'll find once it's sort of in that circadian alignment i think we can, uh, think we can talk about poo, poo all day long that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> i talk about every morning so, uh but yeah it's a lot more we'll be we be um i guess people can't see this but we were nodding and grinning the whole time you were saying that's like, exactly what we do ourselves and we <laughs> it's what we practice and promote which is great um but for people that um that would like to find out more about you or maybe have a console where is the best place to send them to yeah so my website which is the nutritionpractice.com.au um it's a very simple web page <laughs> it's got my details the most important thing there um or they can email me on marika m-a-r-i-e-k at the nutritionpractice.com.au so I do consultations face-to-face -face up in Sassafras. Um, otherwise, I actually mostly do phone Skype consultations with people all around Victoria, Australia, and overseas as well. And who, um, I guess, do you like to help the most or what sort of areas do you like to help people with the most? I see. I, I guess most of my clients probably have quite significant gut-related issues, a lot of autoimmune issues. Um, a lot of I do see a lot of children on the spectrum. Um, or significant allergies. Um, yeah, also I do see um, people with cancer, mental health issues. Um, I do, I really love to work with people in the preconception pregnancy phase, but I still find that most people don't even think about 
their nutrition until they're well past the first trimester, which is a real shame. So it's, it's really hard to get people thinking about preparing for a baby. I do love that when I, you know, get a call from someone saying, I'm wanting to have a baby, my partner and I want to find out what we can do. And I'm like, yes, this is what I want to hear. People, you know, thinking proactively. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I really do kind of see people with all sorts of health issues. But, yeah, primarily um, people with really significant gut-related issues. Yeah, and I think we'll have to have a part two with you to delve into some of those deeper areas. You know, is love and preconception stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> preconception, you know, all the stuff around burnout and, um, yeah, mood and gut and everything and, and performance as well for people. I think especially men, that's probably what I'm sure they resonate most with, <laughs> like, you know, how can I be the best, best me to sort of, you know, look after my business, work and family. So, yeah. Thank you so much. This has been really great. Yeah, I think we'll see you out in the backyard in the sunlight <laughs> for lunch. <laughs> I'll be out there this afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Likewise, get some sun, that's for sure. So, but yeah, thanks for um, speaking with us today. Yeah, no worries at all. It was my pleasure. Thanks for joining us. If you're enjoying our show so far, make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And it means a lot to us if you leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as well as share this with friends and family, which will help us get this crucial knowledge out there. If you'd like to connect with us, head on over to Instagram at liveholisticallyau, where you can learn more and ask us anything. See See you you next time. time.